Let's open our Bibles to the book of Jonah. I've entitled a message this morning, No Place to Run, No Place to Hide. It's a short book, only four chapters, and there are four short chapters. So let's go to our text where Paul was reading for us earlier and read verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. And so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east hill of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And so it damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. The sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself and said, It's better for me to die than to live. And then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he says, It's right for me to be angry, (laughs) even to death. But the Lord said, you're going to have pity on a plant from which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons or children who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and they also have very much livestock? This last week, Israel is celebrating its most holiest day. It's called Yom Kippur. I think it was last Friday, if I remember right. And um, during this time, it's the only time in the Old Testament where the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and um, make atonement for the sins of Israel. One of the reasons there's um, a desire to have the temple rebuilt there's a scripture that says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so you can have Yom Kippur, and you can uh, put on clothing, and you can walk around dismayed and whatever. But um, the fact remains, they have no sacrifices. They need their temple. And um, so there's DNA testing going on all over the world to get the Kohens, so the Levitical priesthood, back. There's a movement towards that right now. But what I found out this week is that uh, the book of Jonah teaches that salvation is not by works, but by faith, which leads to repentance. This little book is read by Orthodox Jews on the Day of Atonement. That's always interesting that wherever we happen to be in the Bible, it coincides so often for what's happening with the feast in Israel, almost without exception. So this sort of blew me away this week. Um, The way to God is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by the blood 
and substitutionary sacrifice provided by the Lord. The most significant statement in the book of Jonah is in the second chapter. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2.9. He is the author of salvation. He erected the great building of our salvation. He is the architect. Time-wise, as you go back and look at it, we're during the reign of Jeroboam II, not to be confused with Jeroboam I, who was the first king of the northern ten tribes. They had 19 kings, not one good one. Of all the 19 they had, they all did evil in the sight of the Lord after the sins of their father, Jeroboam. So the time of Jonah, he's a contemporary to Jeroboam II, right around 782, 753. He ministered after the time of Elisha, just before the time of Amos and Hosea. Israel, under Jeroboam II, was enjoying a period of resurgent and prosperity. Conditions looked promising after many bleak years. And um, the uh, nationalistic uh, fever was probably pretty high. Now, during these years, uh, Assyria was a period of mild decline. Weak rulers had ascended to the throne, but Assyria remained a threat And by the time of Jonah, Assyria's cruelty, and I want to say that again, they were cruel beyond words. Assyria's cruelty had become legendary. Graphic accounts of their cruel treatment of captives have been found in ancient Assyrian records, especially from the 9th and 7th century BC. The repentance of Nineveh probably occurred in the reign of a king around 773-775. So that's sort of a little bit of the background. And we have um, a little history here. It was Nimrod, way back in taking notes, Genesis 10, verses 10 and 11, it tells us that it was Nimrod who not only built Nineveh, but he also built Babylon. Nineveh today, I'm actually going to put a map up on the screen to show you, Nineveh today is called Mosul. 1.5 million people live in Mosul. So the ancient city of Nineveh, um, you might remember last year that ISIS was going around destroying artifacts and buildings. Well, in Mosul, they have Jonah's tomb before Isis got a hold of it. This is what Jonah's tomb looked like in Mosul before Isis came. This was just last year in 2016. After they were through with it, this is what it looked like. A ripped rubble. Anything to do, the, the battles between the Sunni and the Shiites and Isis is simply off the charts. And um, there is a reason that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Simple. He hated them. They were so cruel um, that Jonah um, wanted nothing to do. And I thought about this. How can I illustrate that so that it would grab us where you could actually say, here's a guy that God spoke to him, said, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach repentance to him. And Jonah says, not, 
Not me. So, so that you can identify, put yourself in Jonah's sandals just for a second. I'm going to put something on screen that would be equivalent to the Syrian Zen and ISIS now. And I dare not get more graphic than what I'm going to show you. I'm not going to show a video, just one picture. And this is it. That's all you need to see. You can take it off. My question, how would you like to be sent by the Lord to have a revival with ISIS? Hmm. Uh, Lord, I don't know about that one. This is exactly what's going through Jonah's head at this time. That's what he's called to do. And he hates them. And, you know, I, I look at these guys and I want... I want uh, uh, hour in a room with one of these guys, even though they'd probably take me out, I'd get a couple good licks in first. <laughs> because, you know, the cruelty is just o- over the top. And then they would mock on top of it. And that's ISIS. So as we look at this morning, let's look at uh, the book of Jonah, see what we can glean from it. I've divided it up into three sections. Um, number one, obedience to the call of God. Number two, Jonah is a type of Jesus, and number three, the nature of our God. Let's go back to chapter one and look at the first uh, three verses here, four. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Sort of like Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. We'll be in Joppa before the end of the month. It's on the Mediterranean by Caesarea and found a ship going to Tarshish, paid his fare, went down into it to go to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. There's a reason I call this, you can run, but you cannot hide. (laughs) So how do you hide from God? That's the first question. I mean, where where are you going to go? Where are you going to hide? Psalm 139 says, David says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I try to run away to Tarshish, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will withhold me. And you, David is aware that God is everywhere. He's not in everything, and there's a big difference being everywhere, omnipresent, and being in everything. Matter of fact, that's something Warren is writing about right now, that this is a, the latest Um, new age thing that's creeping into the church that uh, God is in everything including everyone well no the only way that God can be in everyone is if you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior and then you become the temple of God 1 Corinthians 3 says don't you realize that you're the temple of God and God dwells in you did he dwell in you before you repented of your sins and accepted him No, God does not dwell in everything. That's a very new age concept. And um, to this generation who is biblically illiterate, naive, uh, that's pretty much over their head. 
But it sounds good. Don't you think it sounds good? But it's simply not true. So God is. Um, the rest of the story here is uh, verses 4 through 16. Rather than read it, I'll briefly go over it. Um, it says, the Lord sent a great wind. Let's just stop and think about that. We know that our adversary, the God of this world, the prince and the power of the air, was responsible for the tornado that took out Job's kid's house. Seven sons, three daughters died. We know that Lucifer was behind that, but not this one. This one says the Lord sent the storm. It's supernatural. It wasn't just that time of the season for a storm. And the Lord sent it. It was a supernatural storm that was sent by the Lord himself. And these seasoned seamen, um, they realize that this is not the ordinary storm. And they began to freak out. And Jonah is sound asleep down in the belly of the ship. And everybody else is throwing their cargo out, trying to lighten up the boat so that it doesn't go down. Did I say boat? Correct? Good enough for Wisconsinite? Okay, good. Good boat. And they run down to Jonah and said, everybody's calling out upon your God. Get up here. And you call out on your God too. And he says, by the way, who are you? Verse 9, he says, well, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said, well, what do we do to make this right? It's not our fault. We don't want your blood on our hands. He says, well, you got you to gotta throw me overboard. And everything will be fine. Well, they couldn't bring themselves to do that, so they roll. They begin to roll. But it was exercise and futility. They weren't getting anywhere. So, verse 15, they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And notice, the sea ceased from its raging, and that caused the men to fear God exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. You ever make a vow to God when you're in a tight spot? Lord, if you just get me out of this one, I promise I'll do whatever you want me to do. Well, that's what these guys were up to here. The storm was gone. And, um, you know, I told the, the group on Wednesday night, I always thought it was only after three days that Jonah prayed. And after reading more carefully, I found that that wasn't true. Now, if I'm getting thrown off the boat, I'm praying before I hit the water, okay? So here, in verse 17, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. It doesn't say a whale, it just says a great fish that was specially prepared. And in the belly of the fish, and he was there for three days and three nights. Then verse two, then Jonah prayed to the Lord of his God from the fish's belly. So now, as we look at this this morning, uh, verse 17, um, oh, you crazy Christians, do you really think you expect me to believe that there was some guy that got thrown into the water. He was in some fish for three days and three nights. You expect me to believe that? Well, all I have to say to that is, well, I know that Jesus did. 
And with that, I'd like you to turn to our second point this morning, that Jonah is a type of Jesus. As we make our way through the Bible, remember, the Lord says, when you're reading Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. The volume of the book is about me. Jonah is about Jesus. He is a type of Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation. So in Matthew, chapter, we'll pick it up in chapter 12, verse 38. It says, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him and said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says, and the men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation, Jesus' generation, and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus wasn't received by everybody. Um, But when Jonah preached, it was the greatest success rate in an evangelical rally in world history. 100% of the city got saved. Everybody. Everybody was saved. Now, even on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved, but it says many. There were many more than 3,000 of that day. And you have Peter under the power of the Holy Spirit preaching. But in this case, if we go back um, now, we talked about this. um, And again, this is interesting to me because in men's prayer yesterday, uh, we finished up the book of Ephesians. And when we got to chapter 4, um, this three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The question is, well, what was the Lord doing three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Well, Ephesians 4, verse 8 tells us. It says in verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, now this he ascended, what does it mean that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Well, what's that all about? What's he doing down there? In Luke 16, we have the story, not a parable, because a parable did not have proper names in it. This one does. The guy's name is Lazarus. There was a rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man died and went to hell. And Lazarus died and it went to Abraham's bosom. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that the Old Testament saints died in faith not having received the promise. What's the promise? The kingdom. They were promised the kingdom. But they died and they didn't receive it. Why? Because Jesus had to die on the cross first before anybody can enter into God's kingdom. The sin issue has to be dealt with. Well, when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. To tell us die, paid in full, work done. And he told the, the thief on, on who was next to him, who was mocking him, which most of us did before we were saved. 
or use the Lord's name in vain. But as he's watching the Lord and says, no, this guy's different. I really believe he is the son of God. So he looks at the Lord and says, Lord, will you, what did I say? He said, what? He said, Lord. He said, Lord, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? And the Lord says, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Well, wait a second. Jesus didn't go to heaven for three days. He was three days and three nights. And so how could he be in heaven, paradise, that day? Answer, he wasn't. He was in a place, when you read Luke 16, that was separated. Abraham's bosom over here, all those who had died in faith, were waiting for the Lord to show up to set them free, set the captives free. And then on the other hand, you have this guy, um, rich man, goes unnamed. And here's a heavy thing that I hope just shakes you to the core. And that the reality is, when you die... It's only the beginning. And there's no second chances. There's no purgatory. And it's final. Once to die and then the judgment. And that reality came crushing down on this rich man. And he realized this is it for all eternity. So all of a sudden he has a heart for his unsaved family. Now one of the things we want to learn as we go through Jonah is now is the time to have a heart for the unsaved rather than a plant or fill in the blank. In this case, it was a plant. That (laughs) Jonah had more affection for a plant than he did for 120,000 kids that were just kids. Uh, And his priorities were way out of whack. And so what the Lord did is we read in Matthew 27, verse 52, it says that, on the resurrection day, many graves were opened and those came out of their graves and they appeared to many in Jerusalem. Say what? Yeah, you heard me. But then it qualifies, it says, but only after Jesus rose first. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. But he was setting captives free, those who were in Abraham's bosom, waiting. Where, by the way, the thief on the cross was. What did he have going for him? Well, he's a thief. Didn't say the sinner's prayer. Never went to church. Never got baptized. None of the above. And yet he's in heaven. It's all grace. So he was there for a couple days. And then uh, he's to be absent from the body. is to be present with the Lord. And that's what the Lord was doing for those three days. But he connects it to Jonah. So the whole story of Jonah is really laid out with the idea of preaching the gospel. You can preach the gospel from the book of Jonah. Good place for an amen. amen. Good place. And so we find um, in chapter 2 that he does call out on the Lord. He prayed. He cried out to the Lord. Verse 7, it says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you, to your holy temple. In verse 8 and 9, it says, For those who regard worthless idols, they forsake their own mercies. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving, and I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Now we made mention, what's the key verse of the book of Jonah? Right here. Salvation is of the Lord. 
But it wasn't before the Lord had to deal with the guy. He's on the run (laughs) with nowhere to hide. And does the Lord get his attention? Yeah, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Verse five said he had seaweed wrapped all around his head. And who knows what kind of digestive system looked like that took its toll on Jonah after three days. He, I, I kind of wonder what he looked like when he, when he got. Uh, verse 10, so the Lord spoke to the fish. Fish? Yes, Lord. Spit him out. And he vomited Jonah out onto dry land. And I can't help but wonder, what did Jonah look like? Seaweed wrapped around his head. Probably his skin was bleached out from the stomach acids. It had to be quite a sight to see. Whether he had clones on or any of that stuff, doesn't, it doesn't say. But um, nonetheless, um, at this point here, before he goes and completes it, it says, let's read the first three verses of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Know that the Lord is the Lord of second chances. And I want to say this a couple times this morning. There's nothing you've ever done that will outdo the offenses of an Assyrian or an ISIS person. Yet God would save them anyway. So if you think you've crossed the line, you've gone too far. I'm here to tell you this morning that God is a God of second chances. Peter had, the Lord had to say to Peter a second time, follow me. Because after he denied the Lord three times, Peter checked out. He says, how can I be a disciple? I denied the one I'd said I'd lay my life down for. And a little girl made me be afraid. And I denied the one. So it just gives us this one verse in the New Testament that when Jesus arose and he uh, appeared to Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus, when they come back and they tell the story, oh, by the way, the Lord has appeared to Peter. More information, please? That's all it tells us. There was a one-on-one that took place between Peter. And the Lord wants you to know, he can have, you can have your one-on-one with him. Lord, I blew it. I denied you, walked away from you. And the Lord sought him out, just like he sought Jonah out. Peter, you can try to run from me, but it won't do you any good. I'm going to find you. I'm going to hunt you down. They call him the hound of heaven. And he does that because he loves you. So here, the second time the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great city, a three days journey to walk around it. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day. And then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You guys are toast. The Lord's going to nuke you in your history. Now, before I go any farther, in the times in which we live, I like to take a little rabbit trail here and um, expose some of the heresies that are creeping into the church that is actually leading for people to be indifferent about sharing the gospel with others. Probably the main reason I brought Robert Congdon in from for our pastor's conference is because what he saw happened in Europe with the Reformed theology and Calvinism in the state churches 
It's basically a post-Christian nation. And so what I'm going to talk about just for a little bit, and I'm going to put it up on screen, and I want you to know that I have copies of what I'm going to read to you and show you on the screen. They'll be on the table out back. And the question is about Reformed theology or what we call five-point Calvinism. Uh, John Calvin, I do not believe, was a Christian. If you read his history as the overseer of Geneva, uh, the five points of Calvinism called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, abbreviations, I'm going to go through this morning. And um, John Calvin's Calvinism had changed over the years, but this is how it exists today. One of the points that Robert Congdon made is that some people say, well, I'm, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I'm just a four-point Calvinist or a three-point Calvinist. And he did an excellent job in saying, if you're a Calvinist, you're a Calvinist. If it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, guess what? It be a duck. But uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, Reformed theology has caused many a split in churches, including Calvary Chapel. And uh, so where we come down in this is really, to me, the, I'll ask this question. If Calvinism is true, why send Jonah to Nineveh at all? Why talk to anyone about the Lord? Because according to Calvinism, you don't have the free will to decide. It's all been predetermined ahead of time. You have no choice in the matter. And uh, some of you are saying, well, that sounds ridiculous. And that's because it is. But again, if you don't know your word well and have stories like Jonah, you have to ask the simple question. If God has preordained it, why waste your time, Jonah? All right. Tulip, T-U-L-I-P, and I'm going to read through these. Oh, I got to tell you this. I got to get this T-shirt. I saw somebody wearing it, and the T-shirt said, "Some lives matter." <laughs> Isn't that a great T-shirt? Some lives matter. I mean, if that doesn't sum up Calvinism, maybe except for Dave Hunt's book, "What Love Is This?" I mean, the whole book is it's that thick, but all you need is the title. What love is this? So, total depravity. The Calvinists believe that man is an absolute bondage to sin and Satan, unable to exercise his own will to trust in Jesus Christ without the help of God. You, unconditional election. The Calvinists believe that the foreknowledge is based upon the plan and purpose of God, and that election is not based upon the decision of man, but the free will of the creator Alone. In other words, you don't have a say in the matter. L, limited atonement. The Calvinists believe that Jesus Christ died to save those who were given to him by the Father in eternity past. In this view, all for whom Jesus died, the elect, will be saved. And all for whom he did not die, the non-elect, will be lost. I, irresistible grace. The Calvinists believe that the Lord possesses irresistible grace that cannot be obstructed. They taught that the free will of man is so far removed from salvation that the elect are regenerated, made spiritually alive by God even before expressing faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. If a totally depraved person wasn't made alive by the Holy Spirit, 
such a calling on God would be impossible. And the last one, the perseverance of the saints. And this is what draws a lot of people in without thinking it all the way through. The Calvinists believe that salvation is entirely the work of the Lord. And that man has absolutely nothing to do with the process. The saints will uh, preserve because God will see to it that he will finish the work which he has begun. Now that's a great verse. He which has begun a good work in you will complete it. But it's after you've made your free will decision to follow him. So how can the Bible say that you're predestinated before even the foundation of the world? And my answer to that is, is there anything that God doesn't know? Is there anything that he doesn't know? Did he know whether or not? It says, according to the foreknowledge of God, you're predestinated. Well, God knew if you would or if you wouldn't accept him. And this frustrates many, many people, but they just don't think it through. It appeals to the intellectual. And there are some incredibly gifted Bible teachers out there. John MacArthur, Alistair Beggs. He's got that great Scottish accent and draws you right in. And yet, having said that, they're not playing, they're not showing their whole hand. Uh, They speak a lot of truth. But when it gets into it, you'll catch them every once in a while slipping into Calvinism. And um, unless I'm up here explaining Tulip to you and what this is, it's a part of uh, the Christian world in which we live. And it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, to me, it gets down to more of an emotional level of love. And um, if I want to spend eternity with my loved ones, I want that choice. I'm not a robot. You're not a robot. You exercise because God so loved the world that whosoever. Do you know that you're a whosoever? Yeah. Do you know that the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish? Well, these are slam drunk scriptures that should put this to rest once and for all. Amen? You can pick this up out there if you want it. Uh, people repented of their own free will, verses 5 through 9. So the people of Nineveh believed God. What did they do? They believed God. Proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and thus everybody followed his example. Um, And they said in verse 9, Who can tell if God will turn away and relent and turn away from his first anger so that he will not perish? Now, this is a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah got wiped out, Dwight. Yeah, but remember what Abraham said? He said, it gets down to ten. If there's 10 righteous in a city, I won't do it. But there wasn't 10. Did he make provision for the other eight to get out? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, the angels had to pull them out. And when they they were doing it, he says, we can't do anything until you're out of here. Judgment can't come unless the righteous are taken out. The tribulation can't come until the rapture of the church takes place. And it just... It just connects, and it makes sense. Verse 10, then God saw their works, and they returned from their evil, and God relented from the disaster that he would have brought upon them, but he did not do it. God forgave them. Why? Because they repented. 
In the same way that the woman caught in adultery repented, wasn't talked about, it was talked about here in the heart. She also said, Lord, no man here. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go in peace. And God sees the heart, not so much the mouth. He says, your people, some people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Again, relation trumps everything. Like I said to the guys yesterday, we're in Ephesians. It's sad because John was the uh, pastor that helped found the church of Ephesus. And when he was a young whippersnapper, he had a temper. So James and John were called sons of thunder. But then they healed the guy going into the temple one day, and everybody was surprised because they were unlearned and uneducated men. They're fishermen. It says, but they took note that they had been hanging out with Jesus. And so silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Guy gets up, walking and leaping and praising God in the temple, and everybody knew it. Everybody recognized that's the same guy that's been sitting outside that gate for years. And now he's walking and jumping and praising God. What's up with that? And we have this wonderful story that God can forgive. If God can forgive the Ninevites. And then as I was studying yesterday, I thought, who's the baddest guy um, in our state that ever, you say, there's no way this guy could ever get to heaven. Jeffrey Dahmer, you got it. And so I went online, because I heard he became a Christian. And I did a little research. And um, there is a book, and I'm going to show you a 53-second video clip of him talking for himself. A guy wrote a book, reviewed by Greg Taylor. The book tells the disturbing yet redemptive story of how God's grace, an atheist, pedophile, Mass murderer repented and believed in Jesus Christ. Roy Radcliffe, the preacher turned prison minister who baptized Jeffrey Dahmer, discovered through him this deep sense of grace that flies in the face of our compunction to condemn condemning voices by one college professor who said, if Dahmer's in heaven, I don't want to be there. Uh, Radcliffe says he became convinced of Dahmer's sincerity during seven months of prison visits. I feel very, very bad about the crimes I've committed, Dahmer told Radcliffe. In fact, I think I should have been put to death by the state for what I did. Instead, a fellow inmate killed him in Dahmer in 1994. What I want you to catch here is they ask him the question, well, were you brought up in a tough family and stuff like that? I want you to Listen carefully where he talks about evolution. And if evolution is so, that there's a natural, in his mind anyway. And um, I think it's interesting because one of the things that I wish you could take every kid here to is the Grand Canyon and let the science speak for itself about a worldwide flood and judgment. So go ahead and run it and we'll come back to it. Because I always, I always believe the, uh, the lie that uh, evolution is truth, the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from uh, the slime, and uh, when, we, when we died, you know, that was it. There was nothing. So it, the whole theory cheapens life, 
and uh, started reading books about how that show how evolution is, is just a complete lie. There's, there's, no, there's no basis in science to, to uphold it. And I've come to, since come to believe that, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of uh, the heavens and the earth. It just didn't just happen. And uh, I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And I believe that I, as, long, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. If the Lord could save the thief on the cross, he could also save Jeffrey Dahmer. I could spend five minutes listening to a guy. I could tell you if he's saved or not. He's saved. And he knows the Lord. And he's going to be in heaven. But let's turn um, to um, people who get upset, like this professor. Self-righteous hypocrite who has the idea in his mindset, well, I'm not that good, but I'm sure I'm better than Jeffrey Dahmer. So I got a pretty good chance of making it in, and I got a pretty good chance that Dahmer's not. So as you look at chapter 4, and he relents, now we find that um, chapter 4, our text, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. God didn't wipe him out. Go to, with me to um, uh, Luke chapter 13 in the New Testament, picking it up in verse 11. Jonah wasn't the only one who got upset. There were scribes and Pharisees. Pick it up in chapter 13, verse 11. Behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and bent over and could in no way raise herself up. So just imagine this gal, 18 years, a hunchback, bent over. But when Jesus saw her, he called her up to him and said, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the rulers of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered them and said, you hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox and his donkey from the stall and lead it to water it? So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham who Satan has bound, think of it for 18 years, be loose from the bond on the Sabbath. And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Now in the early 70s, I worked for a a very wealthy family that raised gated horses, I, their cheapest horse started around eight, ten grand. And I was a stable boy. I really liked this job. Learned that horses have personalities, they're individual, and, and they have their own temperament and all that. And, um, but the problem was, you know, horses need to be fed every single day, including Sunday. And I was a new Christian, and it was Sunday. As far as I was concerned, the Bible says you don't work on Sunday. So I'm bummed out. And I was rooming with the youth pastor 
um, at the church at the time. And I came in, I was bummed out. I said, I got to quit this job. And, and um, he simply was reading. And he says, Dwight, I've just been reading. Just check this out, man. This is great. Just l- listen to this. And he read this parable. But instead of the word donkey in his translation, it says, which one of you on a Sabbath would not take his horse and feed him? And I went, hallelujah. (laughs) I got to keep my job because I liked it. It was great. And I was beginning to understand grace and just the goodness of the Lord. They got upset. They were legalistic. And they had no idea of God's graciousness. That instead of rejoicing for this poor gal for 18 years that couldn't walk straight, now she's set free and they're upset about it? Yeah, correctly here, shame on them. For the, and he put them to shame. All right, let's uh, wind this up this morning by looking at our text, the nature of our God. We find back in Jonah chapter 4, And Jonah's basically saying, I knew it. So he prayed to the Lord in verse 2 and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled to Tarshish, which is, by the way, uh, probably the southern part of Spain. Some say Britain. But it's as far away as Nineveh as you could get. For I know, he knew his God, that you're gracious and you're merciful, that you're slow to anger, and you're abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, Lord, please deliver me, for it's better for me to die. <laughs> he just had the most successful revival in world history. His, his message was so effective that he had 100% repentance and salvation. Now, how is that for a happy evangelist? (laughs) I want to die. They all repented. So the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city of the attitude, it sure is. And then he just sat there and he said, maybe the Lord will change his mind. I'm going to sit here and see if he nukes this city or not. So the Lord prepared a plant. A little illustration now for Jonah just to show him just how far off track his heart really is. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for the head of the deli- to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as the morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And so it damaged the plant and it withered. And then It happened that the sun rose and God prepared a uh, wind from the east and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wished to die for himself. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. And then the Lord said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, you darn right, it's right for me to be angry about the plant, even to death. And he's got more concern about his flower garden, his vegetable garden, whatever is taking a place of having a heart for lost people and putting your affection in something that's temporal. That's the way I would put this this together. 
Temporal things. Things that are going to burn. And the Lord's saying, don't worry about it. Solomon was clothed greatly, but look at the lilies of the field. They're far greater than anything Solomon ever had. And he said, so you, I want you to seek first the kingdom, and I want your first love to be what my first love is. And what is that? Oh, I'm merciful, gracious, slow to anger. I have more concern about, and we read it here, Jonah could care more about his plant than these lost, what we're talking about now is children. Just dedicated little um, Audrey this morning. And um, what a precious little girl. Do you know that there were 120,000 precious little girls like that in Nineveh? You don't think the Lord's heart went out to those 120,000? The reason it says the right hand from the left hand is because she doesn't quite have that figured out yet, right? She will someday, but not now. He said, Jonah, he said, you have pity on the plant from which you have not labored and made it grow, which came up at night and appears tomorrow. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Why should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much livestock? Jonah's thinking, yeah, even the Assyrians, even ISIS, even Jeffrey Dahmer, even the thief on a cross, yeah, yeah, if they'll repent and turn. Because my Bible says all have sinned, every single one of us, and fallen short of the glory of God. And the closer we get to the Lord and the older we live, we realize just how much of wretches we are. Good place for an amen. It's true. Grace, 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 Lord, give me grace. Don't give me what I deserve. Give me your grace. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This is the nature of, of our God that's shown to us at a great extreme. He picked the worst of the worst to show his grace to. And then he beckons us, for those of you who may not be saved, or maybe you're thinking there's no way. You don't know what I've done. No, I don't. The Lord does. But I don't think it's any worse than an Ninevite. And then he says, Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, upon you and learn from me. When we teach Jonah, what do we learn? That God is a God of compassion and grace, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Matter of fact, that's the, then he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. And again, when you realize it's all about grace, that takes the pressure off you. And when he says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, well, that's the truth. You have perfect freedom because salvation is of Dwight, right? (laughs) That is funny. (laughs) (laughs) Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. What does that create in a forgiven sinner? A grateful heart. What can I offer to the Lord? 
accept the sacrifice of praise. Lord, I'm just thankful. I'm just grateful that you are a God who's not an angry God, but you're a God who's described as merciful, slow to anger, abundant loving kindness. And he says, I want you to learn these things so that when you represent me before people, that's what they see. They don't see an angry God who's just ready for you to make a one little step and pow, just waiting for you to mess up so I can squash like a bug. No, just the opposite. He's a hound of heaven who will seek you out, gentle and lowly in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Last verse, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So much for Calvinism. Amen? Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for, as your word says, the volume of the book is all about you. And then you tell us you want us to learn. Learn what? To correctly represent you before people and not get all bent out of shape like Jonah and be more concerned with things that are going to be here today and gone tomorrow. But Lord, give us a heart for what you have a heart for, that you tell us that you love this world so much that you did send your son here to die for us so that we could have eternity with you. Lord, for whoever this morning this is meant for, I've never received you in a personal way. I just pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, give them um, an open heart, that they would know that today is the day of salvation. And if they would simply turn and repent, like the people of Nineveh, that you're there to forgive that quickly. And it is a matter of a heart And it is a matter of exercising our own free will. So we thank you for Jonah. We pray you go before us the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.